Welcome to the 11th Annual Symposium for Grantees podcast, entitled How to Use Data to Drive Evaluation and Improve Employment Practices and Outcomes. This podcast was recorded on Thursday, October 27, 2016, at the Kessler Foundation Conference Center at 120 Eagle Rock Avenue, East Hanover, New Jersey, and is sponsored by Kessler Foundation. This symposium was organized by Elaine Katz, Senior Vice President of Grants and Communications. It was edited and produced by Joan Banks-Smith of Kessler Foundation. We begin with introductory remarks from Elizabeth Connolly, Acting Commissioner, New Jersey Department of Human Services, followed by Alice Honeycutt, Director of Vocational Rehabilitation Services, New Jersey Department of Labor. And then our guest speaker, Kathy Crepsio, Executive Director and Senior Researcher, John J. Haldridge Center for Workforce Development, Rutgers, the State University of New Jersey. And she is presenting, Employment Data Can Strengthen Your Practice. So thank you very much for inviting me today. Thank you, Roger. Thank you, Elaine. Um, It's my pleasure to be here to represent the New Jersey Department of Human Services. And I have to say, when I saw the title of the symposium today, I was very excited because I do have a background in data um, and evaluation. And one part of my life, I was the director of data analysis and reporting for the Office of Children's Services, where we focused on child welfare issues. And then I was the director of research and evaluation for the Department of Human Services. So I had uh, oversaw everything across the whole department, and we're pretty large, and you know, eight divisions. Uh, we serve one in four New Jersey residents. So uh, there was a lot of data analysis and reporting going on there. And I also taught um, briefly uh, one class in uh, the graduate school social work at Rutgers, and I taught research. And I remember every time I would start a new semester, and I'd walk in, and you know, social workers um, are the backbone of the Department of Human Services, and so I was always very excited and energized to teach them, and I wanted to you know, show them how important data was to their practice. And they would look at me, and I'm not kidding you, I get this scrunched up face. Uh, you know, like, why do we, why, why, why? And I was trying to instill in them, and hopefully by the end of their time with me, they did see how important data really was to improve and to advise them in how they should move forward. And not just at the level of the policymaker or the level of the legislator, but even as the person who actually is doing the work on a day-to-day basis, to be able to sort of do your own research and ask your own questions to improve how you work with your clients is so important. So I'm hoping that I've had about 10 classes that I've taught, and hopefully those students have gone forward and actually think back every now and then when they actually apply some sort of, even if it's their own little research in their own practice, that they have thought that you know this actually was a worthwhile um, class that they took, even though they had to take it. Um, too many of them told me they weren't statisticians and mathematicians, and why were they here anyway? Uh, so that was good. Um, so hopefully they're a little bit better now. But um, in 2012, Governor Christie declared New Jersey a employment first state and so employment first means that um, competitive employment is the first and preferable post-educational activity for everyone including people with disabilities 
And I want to read you a quote from his announcement. Everyone should have the opportunity to be productive, earn a living, and feel a sense of personal fulfillment from employment. That's why we're working cooperatively with the private sector to ensure that people with disabilities are a seamless part of New Jersey's workforce, with the independence and sense of community that comes from relationships developed inside and outside of the workplace. And I could not agree with that more. And at the department, we are trying to um, create a number of supports for people who, with disabilities who are in um, the workforce. So through our Medicaid state plan, uh, we've included workplace personal care as a benefit for people with disabilities. And so we are allowing people and giving them the supports needed to actually fulfill their employment goals. Um, we're very proud of our New Jersey Workability Program, and it provides Medicaid coverage to about 5,000 people, a little bit more than 5,000, um, with disabilities whose earnings would otherwise make them ineligible for Medicaid. Medicaid is such an important support um, for them. Um, and the average income of a participant in the workability program is up to $5,000 per year in the last three years. And the average tenure in a job was in 2003, it was two years. And now in 2015, we find that the average tenure in a job is eight years. Um, and that's a huge, a huge attainment. Um, and we're very proud of that. Um, so I just want to say that I'm, I'm very happy to be here and to support the work of the Kessler Foundation. Um, and I'm really excited that Kathy is here because I do think the ability to use our data to show the outcomes. I think that the personal stories that we can all you know, talk about, one client, one consumer, um, and we all have that one that we you know, can show. But to actually have the data and then use the stories, the anecdotal stories and the stories of our personal interactions to back up and support the data really does drive home. I can see it with legislators when you can present them with the data on how things have moved, how things have changed, how can we make things better, and then to back that up with the personal story, it really does drive that message home so much more. So I hope today you walk away with um, some inspiration and the ability really to, um, to move forward and use data in a positive manner. Thank you. This is Disability Employment Awareness Month, and so what a better time to really take a look at what data can do for us. I'm sort of a data diva too. Um, although my background is done in data, data. <laughs> I, sort of diva maybe, um, in data, I do look at it a lot in order for us at the Division of Vocational Rehabilitation Services to try to figure out goals in order to increase the employment outcomes into competitive integrated employment for individuals with disabilities. So I'm happy to report that last year we placed over 3,800 individuals with an average of over $12 a job, an hour, which is very good. Um, our department also has a industry sector strategy. Um, have you all heard of the talent networks in New Jersey? Um, I actually have them written down here if you need to know who they are, I can tell you. But we use that as a strategy to develop our training programs because we want to hear from businesses on, on what their needs are in order for us to ensure that job seekers in the state of New Jersey, including individuals with disabilities, can be, become those qualified candidates that, uh, that employers are looking for. And I'm sitting here in a room full of providers who do that and support that notion and provide training and provide that assistance every day, so I want to thank you for that. So, um, Aaron also wanted to be able to announce, so now I get to, <laughs> that on Monday, the department um, released the first ever industry value credential list. So if you go on to the department, 
So over the past year, thank you. <laughs> over the past year, the, um, the, our labor market analysts, I've worked closely with employers and educators to compile a list of 198 credentials. So the, the credentials on this list are valued, which means they're recognized by employers. They're portable, reflecting the skills that are valued by the employers. They're stackable, which means you can get one and then move on in a career pathway. And then they're also rewarding because once you get your stackable credential, you'll be able to move forward and hopefully in your career pathway, move forward and have a career as opposed to that first job. So we, I talk a lot with our providers about um, allowing individuals with disabilities to get into that first job, but it ain't over at this point. And the WIOA, the Workforce Innovation and Opportunity Act, is very clear that we need to think about strategies that will now maximize employment. One of the things we did at VR over DVRS over the last year, actually it's been three years, we embedded, we looked at some evidence-based strategies and programs to um, move toward increasing the uh, integrated employment for individuals with more intellectual disabilities. So I'm happy to tell you that as of September, we now have four pilot search projects. Pilot search is a, a last year um, high school education opportunity in a business that 73% of the individuals do move on to competitive integrated employment. So up from you know, 19, 18, 20, 26, and that's really exciting. So we have two in Bergen, one in Union County, and one in Camden County. And the uh, interest now has exploded. So I'm getting calls every, you know, every couple weeks for industries that uh, have heard about it and are interested in it. So DBRS is the state liaison for Project Search. It's a national program, actually an international program. So uh, any of you who are interested, contact our office and we can begin that conversation. We actually help fund the project and fund the, the necessary component to it that will move individuals into competitive integrated employment. So I'm very excited. I look forward today to listening and, and, and learning more about how, how I can use our data at the Department of Labor. And I want to thank everybody. Thank Eileen in particular for all the work that you do in putting these together. They're always very, very informative. Thank you. Thanks, Elaine, and thanks, Roger, and thanks to the Board of Trustees. I appreciate both uh, your confidence in the Heldrick Center and being your evaluator of record over these years. A lovely facilitate, I mean, a lovely facility. Um, one of the things that when I was driving up today, up to 87, it said winter conditions, and I went, no, 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 no. But it's so bright and cheery in here, so, you know, and I will say, when Elaine asked me to do this, and I said, really? You want me to talk about data? Really? I mean, it's not exactly riveting, and I'm going to try to make it exciting. Um, <clears throat> and also, I'm beginning to feel old because everyone's saying, I've known Kathy a long time, and actually Beth and I were saying we've known each other and Howard there almost over 25 years. And so I'm not going to say anything new, Howard. I promise you. You'll know everything. <laughs> so first of all, and I'm also going to say this is a very basic presentation. For some of you who've been around and collecting data, it's probably going to state the obvious. But I decided to just start with the basics because I'm not quite sure what you know and what you don't know. And maybe one of the things I'd like to do is just to find out where everyone's from. I've seen the list, but just if you could raise your hand. Who, who's from a nonprofit organization? Okay, it's a lot of you. Um, a government organization? A couple of you. Um, Kessler or foundation? 
and everybody else, right? <laughs> That's right. That, Rutgers, right? Rutgers <laughs> University. Well, great. So why do we collect data? And I'm, again, it's, it's pretty obvious. We, we do it because we have to. We have to be accountable to our board of directors or to our funders. Um, hopefully, we want to monitor the progress that we're making on our, on our services towards certain goals. We want to really try to improve um, what we're doing. And I think in many instances, people don't always look at data collection as improvement. And really, when you're collecting data, which seems pretty rote, it really creates you know, some knowledge, which creates some wisdom about what you're doing. Um, we want to gauge service quality. And I've seen throughout the years people not collecting data and not really using it to see whether they're providing a good service. They feel good about their service. But they don't look at the data to see if it actually is making a difference in somebody's life or is actually they're moving towards some particular goal. We also use it to assess staff performance. Um, and we don't always do that in the human services field, use data to assess staff performance. It's a very private sector thing where they're taking productivity measures and you're doing something and people are looking to see how fast you do it. We don't always do that, but I know as many of you move from a fee for, to a fee for service, you're going to really start to look, be able to look at assessing your staff's performance because now it's going to make a bigger difference. And of course, you want to achieve your desired results. And I use the word desired results because sometimes you don't always achieve your desired results. Sometimes you're not getting the results that you really desire. <clears throat> so, what are the benefits? I mean, in a way, it's the same thing as why you do it. You want to learn what works. But it's equally important to learn what doesn't work. I mean, I think one of the things I see um, as we've done many evaluations is it's, it's important to learn what is working and then what you should stop doing. Because sometimes you think you're going down a certain path, and if you look at the numbers and you analyze the data, you realize it's not making any difference. And sometimes those things that don't work are counterintuitive to what you think might work, and that's one of the benefits of data. Again, you want to understand what your program has accomplished and why has it accomplished. You know, as Beth said, to be able to have the data, a lot of times we like to tell stories. And I know when I used to be at the Department of Human Services and I was in charge of the evaluation of the first iteration of welfare reform, the, the data people just brought the data. And I'm like, tell a little story. Could you tell stories about stuff? But on the human services side, we tend to use anecdotes and stories and not complement that with data. And I think to do both, as Beth said, is really important. We do want to document effective practices for replication internally and elsewhere because we like to use these phrases, best practices, best practices, best practices. And I mean, without the data, is it really best? I mean, we have this thing in our center where it's a promising practice unless data shows it's a best practice. And so really, let's see what does work and what's a good practice. Again, you want to identify barriers to success and program weaknesses because many instances uh, when someone's running a program and they really invest in this program and they really like this program, there are always some weaknesses in that program that is preventing you from achieving your desired results. And looking at the data can point some of those things out. Or if you just sort of question yourself, like, why am I not getting people in the pipeline? Why am I not recruiting people fast enough? What am I doing? Um, maybe the data can solve that mystery for you. Uh, you want to get evidence needed to take corrective action, early corrective action, and engage in ongoing corrective action. I mean, I look at data 
as, you know, it's like, okay, how are we doing? How are we doing? How are we doing? Oh, maybe this isn't working. Again, you see a theme talking about, you know, sometimes you really do need to take corrective action. Not everything you do is going to work 100% of the time. Um, you use data to, pr to prove your value to existing <coughs> and potential funders. I mean, that seems like a no-brainer. But, you know, back in the day, as my mother used to say, you know, there are times when you didn't use any data and you, you funders would say, hey, you know, are you valuable? Are you, uh, should I invest in you? And, and I would imagine that a funder, whether it's a government funder or whether it's a, a philanthropic organization, is going to say, well, how do I know? Just because you say you're, you're, you're doing a great job, you need to prove you're doing a great job. And I think more, more and more foundations are, over the years, I've noticed a migration of being more data-focused and data-driven Government always was, and you know now it's probably on steroids with the warp opportunity to, with the, the the new WIOA. But you know funders are also looking at that, so you can't get away from it. That's what I'm saying. If you want any money, public or private, you cannot get away from the data issues. Again, I said you make evidence-based information just as available as anecdotes and stories. Beth again said that, and you strengthen practice and improve your community impact. Um, I, this is, this is, I'm a little biased because I don't think, if you don't collect it and you don't understand it, then you can't understand what your results are. And it really leads you nowhere. You will, not, you will find that you do not have uh, any evidence whatsoever to support the things you're going for. And I want to uh, do a little story because um, my husband's family, they're addicted to QVC. Do you know what QVC is? <laughs> Completely addicted to QVC. So for my husband's birthday last year, I took him on a tour of QVC, which is in Westchester, Pennsylvania. He was like, oh, no, I don't want to go. I'm like, no, no, just go. And this is a data story, actually, because as we walked around the studios of QVC, the thing that, again, I'm, the, I'm not quite a data diva, but I am like, I'm like very curious about things. They had a row of computers, and I was so... I mean, I kind of know this, but I was shocked how they use data every single minute to drive the sales. I mean, they had a monitor there that as the hosts, or whatever they're called, hosts were speaking, they monitored the sales against what the host was saying. And if the, host, if the sales went up, they would whisper in the host's ear, say that again because this would spike up and i was like oh my god i can't believe that's how they use data i mean to the nanosecond they're using it we don't do that in our field and you know and i think if you're in the private sector you recognize that you live and die on data and more and more you hear talk about big data and data analytics, and you look at all the social media, they are driving all their Facebook feeds and your advertising feeds and your sales feeds with data, but why don't we do it in our field? And I think we, you know, this is about to try to get more sophisticated in that way. I'm not expecting you to all go out and buy expensive MIS systems, <laughs> but I think that there's a basic thing that folks should be doing. So <clears throat> what do you collect? Well, hopefully, <clears throat> you're collecting routine performance assessment and measurement data. You know, just the basics. And I'll talk a little bit about that. How many people are coming into your program? You know, where are they going? How many times are maybe they're seeing a case manager? Um, and then there's wrapped around those numeric things as to counting people. There's also counting service levels and counting interactions and also getting maybe 
you know, maybe you're looking or scanning the case reports that are being filed so you can see if there's any trends. Um, that is different than formal evaluation. And um, I know my colleague, Lori Harrington, was here a minute ago. She, I know she was so riveted by this presentation, she stepped out when I talked about evaluation. <laughs> <coughs> but, you know, what we do for the Kessler Foundation and we've done for other um, state agencies is a formal evaluation, which is, again, different than counting data. Now, collecting that data is important as part of the evaluation, but it's really sending in a third party, and you can also self-evaluate, self which many of you might have done. But a formal evaluation, whether it's an implementation or an outcome, and there's all different kinds of names for those, is you know a third party comes in and, and looks at your data objectively, and then usually in, in involves both quantitative data collection and qualitative data collection. So. From the quantitative side, those are those kinds of counts and markers that we look at, like, okay, for example, you know, how many people came into your program, how many people might have gone to a soft skills training, maybe how many people might have gone to some other kind of skills-based training, uh, what happened to those people after they went to the training, uh, what are their employment and what are their wages. Those are kind of the quantitative. And then the qualitative is, and this is what Lori does a lot for our evaluations, is she goes in and she does Either she conducts focus groups of participants, uh, she probably interviews a, a lot of the staff, both the frontline staff and the managers. She might interview your partners, and some of you might know Lori because she's been out to some of your programs. And she also uh, observes um, what is going on, so just sort of sits back and maybe watches a training class or watches you know, uh, a soft skills <laughs> class or maybe just observes uh, maybe a, a group counseling session or something like that. And so that, I'm not gonna talk about that today, but I think that it's very important and in the research field, we like to involve both kinds of methodologies because sometimes um, the program data says one thing, but if you wanna really understand what's going on, sometimes it's good to just talk to people. Just talk to them and you're gonna find out so much. I mean, and when we write evaluation reports, by the time we write an evaluation report, there's nothing in it that I know the organization doesn't know because they told me what's going on. It's just synthesizing it and putting it into a way that they can understand and that maybe they don't see always what's going on as a collective, but when someone just says, here, this is, you know, this is kind of what's going on in a way that they can say, oh, yeah, you're right, I mean, I did know that, but I wasn't quite sure what was, what was happening. So a couple years ago, uh, the Kessler Foundation asked us to kind of put together a balanced scorecard of data collection. And this is how we sort of advise people to look at things. And so you see it goes from organization level to the participant level, and then from currently what you're doing to post-program. So on the left-hand side is Collecting and looking at things like stakeholder involvement. I know a number of you, as you're doing your programs, it's important for you to collect how many partners you have. So you can say things like, gee, my program has you know, 15 partners out in the community, or we partner with you know, 20,000 employers, or we uh, are leveraging X amount of resources. All of that is important information, both for your funders, but for yourself, because maybe you know, 15 partners sounds good, but maybe it isn't good for what you're doing. Um, also looking at outputs. The outputs are how many people did you recruit? How many people then got enrolled in the program? How many people completed that program and how many people might have dropped out? 
for the post program, um, you're going to look at your sustainability efforts. I mean, how many times does funders say, well, I'm just giving you this grant, so you've got to figure out a way to sustain it. And in many instances, people don't pay attention to this until the end. And so they don't think about this in the beginning, but all of a sudden it's like, oh my gosh, the funding's running out. Oh, what do I do? Oh, I didn't realize it took a year to put together a proposal and get funding and all this other kind of stuff that it does. And so we encourage people to begin thinking about that every single day. And I should say, um, we're for the first time running a program called New Start Career Network, and it's a program for the long-term unemployed over the age of 45. And so I'm sort of living this with my own staff because every day I go, uh, how much money did you raise today? How much, did you put a proposal in yet? You know, where's the numbers? Um, of, so you can put it on that fact sheet as you write that other proposal that I'm asking you every week. What, do you, what did you do this week to sustain this program? And then finally, what I'm gonna delve into a little bit more is the participant outcomes. So we put together a little sample report for those of you who, I'm hoping you all collect data, but uh, you know, for example, as I said, for organizational capacity. Just what's your goal for the stakeholders engaged? How much did you do? And when you just do a simple thing like that, if your goal was, and I've seen this in many instances, your goal was 25 stakeholders, and when you write down the number, it's three, you go, hmm, okay, well that's, I'm not meeting my goal. Maybe I should reflect on why. Do I not have people going out and creating partnerships? Um, do I, am I you know, not really engaged in the community as I should be? Same thing with raising money. When you start to write things down on a, in a computer or on a piece of paper, you, what you attain to your goal, then, you, then there comes the, as I said, the reflection period. Hmm, why did I, what, what's going on here? And as, especially if you as managers, you know, needing to be looking at that sort of every day as a certain scorecard. I won't go into these. For program sustainability, again, did you apply for funding? You know, it's kind of simple, but if you never apply for funding, you can't really expect to get it. So if you have to every day, I mean, believe me, I know people think that you know, it's just too much to apply for it, but you really do have to apply for it. So if in this instance, it's like, did you actually do it? No. Well, I think that's a little problem. You know, if you're not gonna, it's not gonna come out of the air. Um, and did you, you, you wanted to raise 10,000, but you didn't raise anything. Well, that's a red flag to me as a manager. It's like, well, hmm, I don't know. I think you should be working on this area. Again, program outputs. Number of applicants recruited, did you, actually you're doing a great job there. Number of people enrolled, most of them. Number of people who completed. Training dropouts, I mean these kinds of numbers can tell you a lot. Like for example, if you recruit a lot of people, but they don't complete the training, so what's going on there? I mean, you have to ask yourself, what is going on there? Or you recruited them for a training, and they got into the training, but they didn't complete the training. So again, I would be asking the question, what's going on in that training that they're dropping out? Is it because they didn't like it or they didn't get anything out of it? Or is it because, and this is where the, the qualitative is, is it because they couldn't get to the training because you put it out in East Hanover <laughs> no one could get to, um, and there was a transportation issue? I mean, all those things are important questions to ask when you're looking at some of these numbers. Um, participant outcomes, did the number of participants employed within one week, and these are the ones that I'm gonna talk a little bit more about, which is this is, okay, so, okay, so you got a job. Like, did you stay in that job? There's retention issues are very important. 
first of all, did you get the job? Did you stay in the job? And what's your wage? And as Alice was talking about her participants, she knew. I mean, can you imagine, Alice, if you'd gone before this, the legislature and you're like, I don't know how many people I have. And I don't know how many, I don't know what their wages are. I mean, that's not a compelling, very compelling case. Any questions so far? Anybody have questions? Because please feel free to stop me at any point in time. I'll, I'll leave questions to the end, but. And I talk fast, so I'll, I'll try to write it down a bit. <clears throat> so in the employment, I'm going to just focus on employment, because Elaine asked me to really just focus on employment, which is there are typically six employment-related indicators that people keep track of in workforce programs. Any workforce program, whether it's disability employment, ex-offenders, a TANF recipients, average Joes, unemployment, always these same six indicators, some or more or less, whatever. But one is training, which defined as the process of acquiring knowledge or a set of skills. For example, enrollment or completion in pre-employment training programs. In the disability field, you guys provide a lot of pre-employment kinds of programs. I call them soft skills. Sometimes we call it soft skills. It's those, or it's pre-interview skills, teaching somebody how to go through an interview, teaching somebody how to dress for that particular industry, that particular job. You all, that's all across the board. Soft skills pre-employment training is a very common kind of program. Um, and also job-specific hard training. Perhaps you're running a program where for example, uh, we've been evaluating a program um, called Pepsi Act, where in addition to teaching people how to interview for jobs at Pepsi, they also have them go through mock, like, like a work trial, because the, some of the jobs are very physical, and part of the interview process is for 15 minutes you have to lift Pepsi cases and show that you can do that. Um, also, other kinds of hard skills training. Maybe you're putting somebody through uh, a training program so that they could get a job in the financial sector, or maybe they're putting them through a training program so that they can learn basic computer <coughs> skills so they can go into a call center. I mean, those are the kinds of things. Placement is pretty obvious. You're assisting somebody in acquiring employment. Um, it could be placement in a paid internship. It could be placement in a temp job placement in a full-time job, but either way, you are actually helping that person get placed in employment. And then there's the actual employment. Um, having legal paid, regular work, full or part-time, and nowadays, um, as we, there's a lot of discussion about the uh, contractors, gig economy, temp jobs, a lot of jobs are changing. People aren't getting nine to five jobs necessarily, they're getting contract work, or they're being hired by a temp agency. Um, hopefully to get a full-time job or get into that organization or they're just being in a temp job. I mean, I've known some people who have been temporary contract workers for years on end because the industry, like IT, um, is moving toward only hiring people on a contract basis and not hiring them as full-time employees. But you still have to keep track of that. So it's not just, well, I should say, I my one story about this is um, right after September 11th, this Heldrick Center was hired by um, the September 11th fund to run a very large program for dislocated workers who'd lost their jobs as a result of the terrorist attack. And I was the project manager for that job. And we, we contracted with a bunch of different nonprofits because at the time the city had one one stop, which is hard to believe, one one stop 
um, and they couldn't handle the volume of people who'd come in and had lost their jobs. I am getting to a point here. So, so we had, we had, it was a privately run program. There was no government money whatsoever in this program. And I remember I was working with one, um, a, a Jewish vocational service affiliate in New York City, and we had come up with this sheet for collecting data on people. And it was amazing because we always put, who's your employer? Who's your employer and what's your job? And this woman called me up one day and she goes, Kathy, I got all these freelancers. And they all lost their job because all the Wall Street firms downsized. And so all these freelance graphic designers, uh, caterers, you name it. She says, I don't have a, a place to put freelancer because we keep thinking about wage employment. And these people were gig workers. And I'm like, you know what, you're right, because we're so biased and this nine to five thing. So when you're collecting data, you have to make sure that you can be able to capture that somebody is not necessarily in a nine to five job at a working full time, but there's also other types of ways to make um, income in this world. Which goes to my next uh, indicator, which is wages slash income. Because as I said, you know, someone can go into a job making $12 an hour, as Alice said, but they may not be making what you would call a wage. They could be making contract. You know, they, they could be saying, that, you know, it's like I, I got a contract for $5,000 to make, you know, widgets for so-and-so. And it's a, you know, it's, it's a time-limited thing, but that's what I do. And as we serve a lot of unemployed people, it's amazing how many people have these kinds of multiple jobs with multiple income streams not making an hourly wage, but have a contract with somebody to do something. And so that, knowing that, that's something you need to be thinking about as you put in place your data collection systems. Um, the other two things that not everybody tracks, but we like to put this here, which is satisfaction. I mean, I would say um, it's really both the worker's level of contentment with the services that you're providing or their current employment situation, as well as the employer's level of satisfaction and contentment with the services you're providing. And then sometimes um, we do track our own participants' contentment, but we don't always ask the employers, how did, how did I do for you? What, what am I doing? And so this kind of data collection about satisfaction usually doesn't take place in a quantitative way, but a lot of times it's gonna be done with some other methodologies. But I think it's important to check in once in a while. And as I talked about this New Start program, we actually, after we've been in operation a year, in the summer we sent a survey out to all of our members just to sort of gauge this contentment factor. How are we doing? Are you getting, I mean, we learned some things, like there's some things that we weren't doing for them that they really wanted us to. And there's some things that we were doing that they were very satisfied with. Now. Um, the Labor Department is required, I think, as part of the Workforce Investment Act or the OWA to do a customer satisfaction. And I always say most of the time everyone goes, gosh, I love it. I mean, you, you will find that most people will say they're very content. So if they're not content, that's something you really need to pay attention to. And then finally, a return on investment. And you know, businesses like to use ROI, return on investment, but really what that means is for what I did, did it pay off? I mean, did I, I, I invested so much money, is it paying off? And a lot of times, this also, you'd be surprised that sometimes you're not getting the return on your investment. You're spending a lot of money on a lot of staff, 
and you're getting very little results. And even though you might feel good about it, and you know, you might feel good about what you did, you might feel good about the training you provided. If, if you're spending, I don't know, a half a million dollars and only three people get employed, I think you got an ROI problem. So you, know, you have to say to yourself, is feeling good, is this such mission critical work that I'm gonna subsidize it because I feel good about it even though it's not producing my desired results. And sometimes, sometimes your mission critical work may not have a, hard, a high ROI because it's something you're doing and it's important for the community and maybe just the activities that you're doing might be important, but you also have to realize, is it getting the required output or outcome that you said to your board of directors or you said to your funders that you would get? Any questions so far? There's plenty of coffee. If I'm <laughs> but no one's getting up, so I'd like to keep that. All right, so you know when we when we start an evaluation or when we look at stuff, I'm sorry, I probably keep getting in your way. Um, we ask ourselves questions, and those questions that we're asking, in, in our vernacular, we call it research questions. Drive what data do I have to collect to get them? And so, for in the case, do people get jobs? What are they paid? And more lately, people are asking questions, especially folks like Alice. Are they getting jobs in high growth, high demand industries? And that's been a shift over the last 10 years, I would say, where people are like, well, I got them any job. Yeah, but you got them a low wage job. Or what was in the disability field? It's like food and flowers jobs. So now we're asking, did you get a job in a growth industry that's got a career ladder? You know, we're putting more pressure on all of you to be looking at jobs that are more in demand. That, does, that doesn't mean I've sat through many a conversation across the country is any job is a good job. Well, maybe, yes it is, but also it's, there's better jobs. So, you know, we, we're driving people towards better jobs in, in many places. So how do you get this data? Well, one is the administrative data you collect, that you are collecting. The other thing, and I'll talk a little bit more about that, which is sort of an elusive, you probably can't get access to this unless you know somebody, external records, and I will say an external record, probably the external record that most people use or states use or Alice is using is the, what's called the unemployment insurance wage records. And what that is, for those of you who don't know, is there is a federal law called the uninsurance, uh, the uninsurance compensation laws that both are oversee both the claims records, what they call those who are applying for unemployment insurance. But every employer who has somebody in their employ has to report to every state labor department the wages in the industry of that employee. So in every state department of labor, there's this massive millions of records about all of you about the wages you make in the industries that you have. They're highly protected uh, with confidentiality, security, and data breaches, and not everybody can get access to them. But over the years, um, states are becoming more liberal about allowing people, researchers, authorized users, to have access to those records. Um, in the state of New Jersey, the Heldrick Center has been the repository of those records for the past 20 years, so we do look at the records, we use it to drive the consumer report card for the state of New Jersey where, uh, let's say, any training provider has to report their individual uh, social security numbers of people going through their training. We match it 
against the wage records so that we can see what exactly wages that they got before, what were their wages before they went to that training program and what were their wages after they came out of the training program. It's a little bit more reliable than asking somebody what their wages are because people don't always remember or they don't tell the truth or you can't find them. That was my long-winded UI stuff. But I should also say, not in the state of New Jersey, but in some states, Providers like you can petition the state to run their program participants against the UI wage records. Um, that's not in this state, but in the state of Washington, for example, you can ask them to do that for you so you can see for yourself. And then also, as I said, surveys, which is a self-reporting thing, like, okay, I'm gonna send a survey to all 25 of my participants. You know, what are you making? Are you still working? Surveys to employers as well um, about where people are, are they working? They're not as reliable because employers tend to not respond. Or you don't know who to send it to or you send it to HR when HR doesn't have a clue about a big company. It's usually the hiring manager that might know and you don't know who the hiring manager is. And then as I said, external labor market information. You really can't know what's a high growth industry unless you go to your labor department or your economic development or your commerce department to say what are the high growth industries and in the state of New Jersey the labor department really publishes the who are those high growth industries where are people hiring many states I mean probably every single state website has that kind of information now um, the other question are we meeting the needs of employers and in this case I want to make sure I always put the employer focus in because it's nice that you're meeting the needs of the participant, but in this day and age, you need to also meet the demands of the employer because they're, if they're looking for workers, are you satisfying them? Are you recruiting people that are qualified to go into the jobs that they're looking for? Otherwise, it's, it's pointless if people, if you're not finding people for certain jobs that are qualified. And so the way you're, you can assess whether you're meeting these employers' needs is surveys and talking to them either through a survey or calling them up and having a telephone survey or through program administrative data. So if you're not keeping records of how many employers you're meeting with or how many employers you give a presentation to or how many employers you're placing people, you can still keep those records. And a lot of people don't keep those records, but it's really important to keep those kinds of records. So how do you know which, uh, what to use? So I have these little checklists that I found on the internet and I think it's really important because if you don't do this one, it's a problem if you don't keep your own internal records and I'm assuming everybody does. But if you answered no to any of these, then I think you're at such the basic level and I'm assuming that everybody in this room already can say yes to all three of these, which is, <laughs> do you have a system to set up to, to capture data can you do it in a time, is it done in a timely way, which is where it starts to break down? And then can you extract the information easily? And my guess is you probably all have one. Uh, number two, you might have a problem, people don't, don't enter that data as quickly. Or, you know, as I said in our New Start program, we have volunteer career coaches and we have an, uh, a, a web-based collection where every time they meet with a with a unemployed person they're supposed to write up what they did and they don't do it in a timely way with the nudgem and nudgem and nudgem about that I see heads nodding yes of course no one enters it right away but it makes a difference because you know if you don't if you don't get it in a timely then people forget and they don't enter it right and then 
can it get come out easily? You know, how many times over the years, especially being in government, that you put in place a data system and you can't get the data out? I don't know how to use Access. I don't know how to use Excel. I don't know how it works. This isn't working for me. Everyone, except on the scale of government, they spend millions of dollars to get nothing extracted. You're spending tens of thousands of dollars to get nothing extracted. <coughs> surveys, and I think surveys, again, once easy to sort of hard, I'm going from an easy to a hard data collection. Surveys, do I need data from the perspective of the participant? If you need someone's perspective, a survey may be what you do. It could be a telephone survey, could be a web survey, could be a, some other kind of survey, but you, if you're surveying people. Do you have a systematic way to get it from these individuals? Do you have email addresses for folks that you can send them out a survey? Do you have telephone numbers for people? A lot of times I've, we've had people say, hey, we want to do a telephone survey of employers. Do you have telephone numbers? No. Well, that's kind of a problem. Um, do I need data that is standardized so I can make statistical comparisons? Can I compare against something or other? Uh, will the participants be able to understand the survey questions, especially in more disadvantaged populations? Are you writing it in such a way that they can understand it? Um, with the disability population, does somebody need to help them with it? Um, there's different ways of surveying different populations. Will it, it, can, is it as I said about the employer, is it going to get to the right person? Um, it, it, so you have to ask yourself, can it? Can it really get to that person? And do the participants have the necessary knowledge or awareness to answer the questions? And again, um, is that participant in such a way that they could answer this question? Or, as I said earlier about the employer, are you sending it to the right person? Because if all you have is a contact, is the HR manager, well, if you sent, believe me, if you sent an sur employer survey to Rutgers University and you sent it to the HR director, they could not possibly know how to fill that out if it's about your program because it's just so decentralized and it's so large that you could send it to nothing and you're not going to get a response, which is why when, when you do an employer survey, I think at the you know, federal government wants you to have survey response rates of like 80%. Employer surveys, you're lucky if you get 8 to 10% because people just don't respond. There's no motivation for them to respond. So finally, it's the external records. And as I said, um, these are the hardest. Do, do such records exist? Well, do UI wage records exist? Um, VR records exist? These are external ones. And um, an example of this is we did a evaluation of a program for the State Department of Labor. It was a sort of a prisoner reentry program. And one of our findings was is that they asked the ex-offenders who were in the program what their employment and wages were. And our recommendation was why don't you just give your records to the Labor Department and have them run the UI wage records. It was it's, it would be much more cost effective. Um, they had the records. Mm -hmm. The only thing you had to collect was a social security number. And so that's an important factor, I should say, is probably many of you don't collect social security numbers. But when you're matching records to external records, like the UI wage records, DVR records, any other records, everybody uses the common identifier is a social security number, with the exception of Education, education, um, the State Department of Education, most education agencies, because of privacy concerns, 
Um, if you walk away with anything, this is a factoid that you should know. They do not use the Social Security number on students in K through 12. They use what's called a, a, a sort of a, what's called a SIG, which is a common identifier. And so when you try to link records across state agencies, one of the problems is if you've got students in 12th grade, you can't match them against a wage record because <clears throat> they don't have a common identifier. So I always like to talk about why don't you do any of this? I call it the elephant in the room. So, <clears throat> and we've seen this time and again, and I'm sure, has anybody encountered, can I see hands, you've encountered some challenges? <clears throat> One is, as Beth sort of said it with the social workers, that's, well, why should I do this? Why am I doing this? I'm supposed to serve people. So why am I spending all my time writing stuff up or putting stuff into a database and I never see it, I don't know where it goes, no one ever talks to me about it, maybe they do, um, but it's a waste of time, they've had a bad experience with it, they might use it against them, uh, I don't want to do it, I'm a social worker, I'm, you know, I just, I'm too busy, it's not my job. <clears throat> The other one is you don't have any capacity to do it. I mean, how many times do you have people saying, I'm so busy meeting clients that you're having me capture all this data. I don't have time for that. I just don't, I just don't. And I think this is a pitfall <clears throat> on fee-for-service where every dollar, every hour is gonna be billed and you're like, well, wait a minute. If you're making me collect all this data, I can't serve these people, which means I can't bring in any money. And limitations on overhead as well. And limitations on overhead. Um, you're absolutely right. It goes down to the limited dollar value because many times, especially in cash-strapped nonprofits, no one wants to pay you any overhead. They just think you're doing God's work, right? And angels are supporting the administrative structure and <clears throat> people are giving you gobs of administrative support. And that's not the case. And <clears throat> more and more, Nobody wants to fund any capacity, any organization, they want to fund service. And so you have to figure out a way <clears throat> to fund that function, whether it's an MIS system or someone to read the data or someone to analyze it or someone to assess trends. Um, poor quality data, as I said, especially post-program, where you know, many times people are like, I don't know where they went. I don't have staff to look at. I, have, I don't have staff to track people. Or I, I just don't, as I said, I don't have the capacity to do it. Or maybe people do it, but I'm not really assessing the quality control. Or I'm not looking at that. Um, or, you know, it's like maybe there's lazy or they didn't do some simple thing. Like if you have a training program and you, people just come in and no one counts how many people came. No one asks them for their name. Uh, no one asks them to maybe designate what their disability is. Um, and so you, all you have is like, yeah, we had one. Or maybe we had one and five people showed up. Well, what was their disability? I don't know. Or um, how many people dropped out? I don't know if I didn't count them to begin with. I mean, these are all true stories, but if I didn't count them, you know, or I don't do certain bookkeeping kinds of things, but you'd be surprised that people can run really lax ships and not keep track of these things. And they're very simple things to do, but people just don't think about it. And then, um, as I said, difficulty in gaining access to external data sources, which all of you will encounter, unless you're government, you will encounter that. And then finally, <clears throat> skepticism that the data has any value, that the evaluation has any value, or that the findings have any value. 
And <clears throat> I think this is a big issue because a lot of times people are afraid to collect it because they're afraid to report it or they're afraid they'll look bad. And I've said many a time, whether I was in government or whether I'm at the Heldrick Center, which is, okay, I understand your fear of not telling your funder, but don't fool yourself. I mean, you can fool them, but you can't fool yourself. So if you, don't col if you collect it and you don't analyze it, you're just fooling yourselves. You don't, if you don't know what's going on in your own shop, you're fooling yourself. <clears throat> and again, you know, government being what it is, sometimes they don't always like to be transparent about certain things. And so they may not be <coughs> collecting stuff <coughs> or reporting it. But there is a value, and then as Roger goes back to what Roger and Alice said, the value is if it's not a value to you internally, the funding sources are driving that value, and that value is survivability. If you want to survive as an organization because you think you have a great community impact, then you need to be collecting that data, and you need to somehow work through those issues and those resistant issues um, with your organization. So on a final note, <clears throat> I want to talk a little bit about assessing trends and, and patterns. <clears throat> I didn't put a lot there. But <clears throat> one of the things, it's not just important to collect data at a point in time, but I think where I find the most value in data collection is looking at trends over a period of time. I kind of, I'm the one in the office who says, okay, that's really nice, but show me the chart that over this period of time, what's going on with these people? Like just not just what is their age in 2014, but what were the age of my participants in 2014, 2000, thank you very much, 2015 and 2016, because I want to know if the ages of my people are changing, and, and if why. I want to know um, if the wages are going up or going down. Um, you know, Roger talked about your end tide reports. Like, you're, you're gauging today's disability employment numbers on a time series because are they doing better today than they were yesterday or the day before? And so now, I mean, in a lot of ways to be able to have impact on identifying trends is, you know, there's all kinds of programs out there to help you visualize data. You know, when we first started, you know, Excel, you're like, woo, look at that, I can make a pie chart. <laughs> or I can make a bar chart. But now there's kinds of programs out there called Tableau um, that can create all these kinds of great graphics, like those kinds of graphics where you can see trend lines over, over time, like you know, a, a bar chart or a line chart that shows you that when you first started this program five years ago, this is what's hopefully, you know, my wages of my employees, my wages of my participants have gone up or the number of stakeholders has gone up, or the number of employers have gone up. And I think that kind of visualization, especially in today's sort of world where everything is graphics and infographics and pictures and visualizing data and understanding how to do that is vitally important. And I'm gonna make um, one last plug, take a sip of water. like a Marco Rubio when I'm doing this, so, <laughs> and that's not a political statement. Um, you know, uh, one of the things the state's doing, and I invite you all, if you really like data, um, 
I've been working on this project for the last year and a half, but a couple years ago, the State Department of Education received a grant from the U.S. Department of Education to put in place an integrated state longitudinal data system. Now I know, hold your hats, this is really exciting, but um, what it is, is the State Department of Education collects all kinds of data on students. Um, anywhere from, and all kinds of data on teachers and what their certifications are. Um, by school district, by municipality, and they have a big database called NJ Smart here in New Jersey. So the federal government gave New Jersey money to take that data and integrate it with the data from the Department of, of the Office of the Secretary of Higher Education, which is all the data on all the students in any New Jersey participating post-secondary institution, match it against the education data, and also include in it data from the State Department of Labor, with the UI wage records, eventually the VR records, um, the claims data, so that you could say, you could track over time, who, who graduated in 2011 and what happened to them in the labor market. Did they go to college in New Jersey? <coughs> did they get a job and how many wages and what was their major? Um, did they complete college? How soon did they complete it? And you can start to do some very sophisticated um, um, analogies and research on it. <coughs> so the state is, New Jersey is going to launch this data system um, December 1st and 2nd. We're having a data forum at the Heldrick Center. We're bringing in some other states who've been doing this a lot longer than we have. We're bringing in Ohio, <clears throat> Washington State, Kentucky. They have very sophisticated dashboards they've created with this data. Um, and as a requirement of the federal government, that the data has to be made available to external researchers. So not only will this be unleashed um, to the unsuspecting public and the legislature being able to see how New Jersey ends are going. And there's some, um, there's some uh, limitations to the data. For example, uh, we don't have, and I should say this is all being housed at the Heldrick Center, but we don't have access to wage records outside of the state of New Jersey. And eventually we will. Um, there is, I won't give you the sophisticated name called RISP, but it is an agreement between states where you can get wage records from Pennsylvania and New York, and this is particularly important to New Jersey where we have a very small state with very regional labor markets, and it, you know, a lot of people work in New York and a lot of people work in Philadelphia and, and Pennsylvania. Um, it also only includes people who went to school in the state of New Jersey post-secondary, so we don't, and we don't have we have most of all of the public institutions, a few of the private institutions, but not Princeton. We don't care about Princeton, but we're not Princeton. Um, and we don't have access to where people went to school outside of the state of New Jersey. And eventually, you can get that information um, from the federal government. There's an education clearinghouse. But again, we're just launching this, and so we're taking baby steps. But if you really want to get deep into the data and understanding how this all works and understanding how you might fit in as a nonprofit and where you might benefit. Um, and also, we have to, we, the reason it's taken so long is that issue I told you about identifiers. You know, we had to come up with a way to match education data with data that's collected on social security numbers. And I won't go into it because it's very complicated, but it involves motor vehicle data where we use motor vehicle data to link the two data sets because, believe it or not, Big Brother is watching 
Um, we have a lot of motor vehicle records that, not just driver's license, but uh, state ID cards, where we match the name and date and birthday of an individual, and we with with eighty something percent probability we can get a match between it all. So, if you you know, not that we're going to talk a lot about that this data form, but at any rate, so I say that because if you go on our website, um, you can find out about the data form. It's free. Um, it'll be, it's two days, and there's going to be lots of discussions about research and data and the kinds of data that the state's going to be able to get out of this. So with that, I'd be happy to answer any questions or if people want to give testimony about how fantastic their data system is. Go ahead. Um, uh, well, two quick comments. Can you just introduce yourself? Oh, yes, sure. Hi, I'm Carolee Morano. I'm the Director of Development with Community Access Unlimited. Um, and uh, I wanted to add an elephant uh, in the room to the list. Stakeholder buy-in. It's not just the social workers who struggle with why, you know, how, how can I be doing what I need to do. It's also, if someone like me is coming back with this information, you know, well, we've done it a certain way for however long and we're successful. Uh, you know, is this really going to change? How, how? So, who is the stakeholder you're talking about? Is this staff? It could, be, or? it could be board. It could be senior management. It could, whoever it is who has to make the decision to um, crack down on data collection. Mm -hmm. So, I noticed you said crack down, like it's like it's, <laughs> it's, a, it's a it's a punishment, um, right? You know, it's like we will collect it. Well, the, the other issue, you know. It, Part one of the challenges around that is that there's a cost. There's, there's a, a cost to this, right? And certainly, not all organizations are able to make that infrastructure investment. To e even though they may know, recognize, and want to do these things. So what I keep thinking in the back of my mind is, wouldn't it be great if there was like another layer of support around this? Because the organizations are beginning to understand, the nonprofits are beginning to understand they need to do this, but they don't quite have the resources, and they don't have the time and the resources to figure out what they need to do it. You know, and, and that makes it very difficult to make that transition. So I think that's sort of a gap that would help us to address. And the other thing I wanted to say, and I do think fee-for-service is just more and more of us dealing with that, and it's going to really force us, but the, you know, to make certain changes because. We have to make them if we want to get paid. <laughs> right, and I'm, I'm just going to add about the sort of what you were talking earlier about, you know, I think it's important for your organizations, and you may already be doing this, and some of you may be very sophisticated, is to just step back and do a data collection assessment. Like, what are we collecting? Do we need to collect everything? Uh, is it quality? Is it timely? Should we be doing it a different way? And maybe you might have time for an assessment, but you may, and people always want to go from A to Z, uh, but you know, sometimes if you can assess it and start to tackle, all right, today we're going to, this year we're going to tackle our internal record keeping. And you know, then that doesn't have to cost a lot of money because that could just be, I have, uh, like what we did is we have a Qualtrics, what's called Qualtrics, it's like SurveyMonkey. We have a Qualtrics account. We have the, 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 our coaches put something on there and then we look at the data. It, didn't, it doesn't cost that much. Excel doesn't cost that much. It's when you start to get bigger programs, and I know our panel after this is going to talk a lot about how did we get from it being a value and how do we pay for it. Um, I think that's important. I know you had a question. I had a couple of quick things. For the last point that you were making with regard to the launch of this wonderful database, 
is that eventually going to be tracking from just the high school level rather than just post-secondary? Can you repeat the question? Oh, I'm sorry. This, this is about the uh, state longitudinal data system. Are we just tracking from the high school level? And the answer <laughs> is yes. There actually already is, um, and I forgot the name of it, NJR. It's not NJ Earn, but they're also, they're right now there is a data system that just focuses on K through 12 and child, child, I'll say child welfare, child issues, child tracking. It's from the Department <coughs> of Education and they work with Health and Human Services on looking at kids. This system is just really looking at adults with adults starting at age 18. I'm looking at the seniors in high school that will want to track who may not go on to college, but will be wage earners. Right, so it also tracks that. So and we're looking to track the results from the programs we do within the school system. Exactly right. So, for example, what we can look at is uh, you graduated from high school. You didn't. We can see whether you went into the labor market. We can okay. see whether you went to the labor market right after uh, high school. We mm -hmm. can see whether you graduated from high school. Uh, or not. Uh, we could see whether you graduated from a career and technical school versus a comprehensive high school versus something else. We can see what industry we, you went into. We can see what wages. We can see, so we can see when we look at the data both whether you went into the labor market or did not or dropped out or whether you went into some kind of training program because we have records of everybody who's in a training program because the labor department collects that. We can see whether you went to a community college or a public university, mm -hmm. um, and what major you took, and whether you graduated at what point period of time. Um, and eventually, if there's more data, we could see whether you were in a voc rehab program, right. and where you went. Did you go to school? Did you go in the labor market? Um, and eventually, if we merge more data in there, we could see if you went on welfare. Mm -hmm. We could see if you went on food stamps. We could see what your wages were if you went on food stamps. We could eventually also merge it with health records to see like if you were a Medicaid recipient, did you go in the labor market? Mm -hmm. And so on another thing that's happening is the state of New Jersey has also given to Rutgers, another branch, all the Medicaid data and the health data. So eventually in a really big brother world down the road, we could look at what happens to somebody on Medicaid and how, what's their experience in the labor market or in the, in the post-secondary world or did they drop out? I'm Cheryl, I know Elaine wanted us to see who we are. I'm Cheryl Curtis with Curtis Consulting Group. I've worked on a program previously with JEVS and JVS and Tip of the Arrow Foundation that was a signature grant program. And I do a lot of workforce readiness <coughs> programs working with adults and children who are differently abled and helping them prepare for that next step as well as employers. Quick thought here also with regard to, I know you made a few comments um, about, I'm going to say about my colleagues in the HR profession. If you I love them. I, they <laughs> hire people. <laughs> if you do get the folks who are senior level, they will respond to the surveys. They, just the same as if you get a coordinator level person and you could get a coordinator level person in a department, they're probably not going to have the information that you need. I will say, especially for the, the benefit of people in this room who want to reach out and connect with employers, they desperately want to have a pipeline with you. They want to be able to connect with you. So even if you do make those quarterly phone calls and just have a hello with them and say, oh, we're going to be sending out the survey. We'd appreciate you filling it out. They'll do that for you because they want to foster and build those relationships. I think um, I agree with you, and I think the issue is just the challenge of finding the right person. Oh, yes. 
And finding somebody, especially in small businesses, who even has the time of day to talk mm -hmm. to you. Because I know um, I was at a meeting with the Department of Environmental Protection, and they have a very hard time connecting with small employers because they're just too busy. They're too busy making a living. On the other side, with the large employers, it's just this bureaucracy. As I said about Rutgers, there's, there's tons of hiring managers and, 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 and these HR people. So it's, it's trying to get to the right person mm -hmm. that I think is a challenge for all of you unless you have certain dedicated employers that you know who to talk to and who's the right person to answer the question that you want answered. I think that's the, the challenge. Yes, Howard. Uh, you said it right when you mentioned that the Workforce Innovation Opportunity Act being that works on steroids. Uh, you should say who you are, Howard. Uh, Howard Rush with the Essex County Workforce Development Board. Uh, it's just an unbelievable the amount of uh, data items now that we're going to be required to collect, and we're collecting off four, and now it's even more massive. Uh, we're talking about aggregating all the participants and all the people served by the funding service putting that all into the same system and being measured on the performance measures. And I'm concerned with uh, some of the measures now that have come down from the Department of Labor regarding how we're going to evaluate the performance indicators and performance measures. And they're fairly complex. And I'm, I'm worried that like our board members say that they really won't even understand you try to explain some of the measurements that are being used now. And people's heads, they just, your eyes glaze over. I get a presentation, I'm trying to explain Well, what's it. an example of one of the more difficult measures, well, you like think? Well, the measurement of uh, people uh, three quarters after they exhort, and that's another thing, yeah. in terms of the terms we use, exited from a program. In the past, we used to, after their last day in the program, that's their exit day. Mm -hmm. No more. It's, you give them service to a certain point, and then the system will come up with what their exit day is, as long as they didn't get any service from any of our partner agencies for three months. So it, you don't even really know, the step person doesn't even necessarily know what the exit date is, because mm -hmm. if, they, if they got served by another partner agency, technically you don't know that. Mm -hmm. So it's gotten complicated in terms of that, and then whether the person uh, has a job, what their earnings are, three quarters of the year down the road, uh, it's picked up by, as you said, the unemployment system, the unemployment insurance system. So it's gotten complicated. And I'm, thinking that, you know, while that's the mandated uh, measures, maybe we need to do kind of like what you were presenting, come up with our own ones internally that people can understand and see how we're doing that way, even though we could be doing very well on those and failing, you know, the federal measures. But I think at least then maybe we can have a better understanding locally in terms of things that people can relate to and understand. Well, you just reminded me of one thing I also wanted to say, one of my last things before we wrap it up is, <clears throat> the security and confidentiality and protection of your data is very important because you are collecting data about individuals and vulnerable individuals in the labor market and in the community and it's very important you have some kind of protection and security and privacy clause because especially if any of you are protecting or keeping, I know government has all kinds of protections, but nonprofits, you are keeping classified private information, especially if you're collecting a social security number. And you really should look to see what your security measures are to make sure you're not compromising anybody unintentionally, that you are not, um, 
that you're collecting it in a reasonable and responsible way and making sure you have protections, at least at the university level. I mean, we have to go through all kinds of human subjects training. People at Kessler have to do this kind of stuff. We have to sign basically affidavits that say I store the data, I don't take the data on a laptop, I don't put it on my disk, I don't keep it in a drawer that's not locked. And I, I, I should have put a slide about this, but I think it's critical that you make sure you look at your security procedures on your data because you're starting to collect more detailed data about somebody and make sure that you can't identify and I know you had a question right there. It's actually a, another challenge I think because if you look at um, how providers that are doing any kind of employment work or even any kind of direct service work for people with significant disabilities often the money is going to be coming through the DDD system, which is on an MIS. They don't use social security numbers. So that creates another uncommon kind of identifier. identifier. And then, you know, we do have some people that it is a social security number that we're supporting that is through a different funding source. So it's, I mean, I think that also creates big problems, especially for people with significant disabilities, because they're always kind of lost in this other world. Well, and, and I also say, you know, it's nice to have everything on a computer, but you should also make sure that wherever your data is stored, it's stored in a secure thing, because now with the internet being where it is, for example, when we get uh, the data in from the state, we have it on a, a I mean, a, 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 it comes in on, a, on a, a computer that only comes in from that one source. It can't get to the internet in any way, shape or form. It's in a locked room, password protected. And then we have software at Rutgers, like for example, you know, Rutgers University can scan my computer now without me knowing about it and tell me if I have any social security number on my, on my thing. And, and so they can scan all my emails, they can scan all my records, and lo and behold, like I got one the other day, is why I'm thinking about it. I did have a social security number somewhere. I had done a, you know, like a direct deposit form, and it was buried so deep, I would have never found it. It was my own, which is bad. Um, but you should really be thinking about making sure you're not keeping those social security numbers on a desktop folder that anybody could come in with malware could come in or anything could come in and take and take those social yeah, security numbers out. I don't mean to be paranoid, but at Rutgers, we're, we're getting risk. We're getting these risk right. assessments now that you know when you talk about data, you talk about all of this, and then you talk about cost, and now you have to put a risk analysis on it as well. You know, it, it really does create a number of barriers that don't make it. Right, and it doesn't have to be expensive like Rutgers system, right. but it has to be making all your employees aware as, as easy as giving them everybody a piece of paper that says, I know I touch sensitive data and I'm responsible and I need to be whatever. So at any rate, I know I'm getting pulled off with the hook. So thank you so much. Thank you, <laughs> For more information about Kessler Foundation's commitment to finding employment solutions and creating awareness, to the high unemployment and underemployment of Americans with disabilities, go to www.kesslerfoundation.org forward slash grant programs forward slash index.php. That's www.kesslerfoundation.org forward slash 
grant programs forward slash index.php.